So I'm going to invite us into the spirit of worship with this invocation from the Reverend Scott Taylor. Today, we return to the shelter of each other, to arms that hold us in the midst of the storm, to voices that help us hear our own, to hearts that accept us for who we are. May we be for each other a source of safety and sending. May we offer each other both comfort and challenge. And may this place of peace lead us to share peace with others. Let us begin. Our reading this morning comes from poet Naomi Shahib Nye, and it's entitled Wandering Around the Albuquerque Airport. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, Please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate, so I went there. An older woman in full Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her, and I spoke to her haltingly. Shu dawa, shu biduk habibti, stani, stani, shwe min fadlik, sho bit we. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely and she needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. It was Southwest. <laughs> She talked to him, then we called her other sons, just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic, and of course found out they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar. And smiling, there are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic. And the two little girls on our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around 
serving us all apple juice and lemonade. And they were covered with powdered sugar, too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing, with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in. The shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women, too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Maybe one of my favorite readings ever. I love this story poem. It makes me smile. It reminds me of how beautiful we are in our humanity. It reminds me how connected we are and how connected we can be, even in the smallest moment, even in a moment when we're all being massively inconvenienced by a late flight. It reminds me that it's sometimes the pain and the fear that give us the prompt to open up and accept help, accept connection from someone else. Sometimes I need that prompt in airports because I tend to, I tend, my, my um, introverted self comes to the fore in airports and I think I kind of wander around in a self-imposed cone of don't bother me. <laughs> Except it actually also happens to me, too. It has happened frequently that someone who only speaks Spanish is in, is, has some kind of difficulty because airports are not the most hospitable places. And then I get to make that connection, too. I get to help or try to help to be a translator. I also love this story because, you know, cookies. <laughs> Cookies always make things better. Talking to poets makes things better and sharing stories of our lives. There's a little piece of it that I relate to, too, at the very beginning when she hesitates to help. I relate to that, too. And sometimes I'll wonder, oh, I, I like she did, you know, my Arabic is not going to be good enough, or maybe the help and connection that I offer won't be what the person needs. Maybe I'll be rejected. And I'll tell you this, you know, maybe you share this experience. Maybe some of you are full-on extroverts. I'm only half and half. But the truth is, I don't regret ever reaching out to make a connection with someone 
even if it doesn't work out the way I want it to. It always makes me feel better. Which is really what about what what it is that I want to share with you about this morning. Because it turns out that this thing that we have, this thing that not only makes us yearn to belong, also makes us yearn to be of service, makes us yearn to establish that connection from both ends, from the giving and from the receiving. Now, it might sound when I say something like that that I'm sort of making some kind of uber-religious pronouncement because, after all, every religion, at least every religion that I know of, encourages us to give, right? We we are taught that it's better to give than to receive. We're encouraged to find that best part of ourselves. But I want, to, I want to talk about something actually I've been learning about in the last few years, something that was not being taught when I was a, a little girl. It's about the way our brains are actually structured, are actually designed for us to feel good, to feel pleasure when we give, when we share cookies or hold someone's hand even if we're hesitant at first. I've been, I've been reading uh, one of the, you know, you know, I love to learn new things. I've been reading a book by, by a psychologist, Matthew, actually he's a brain scientist, Matthew Lieberman called Social. Is anybody familiar with this book? I'll, uh, I'll try to remember to post it on our Facebook page in case anybody's interested. But he writes about and he details the kind of research that has been done, especially most recently, but especially in the second half of of the 20th century, to illustrate that some of the things that we believe about ourselves or that we are afraid to believe about ourselves are actually not true. Right? You know that theory about how or that thing that where all we care about or what we care about the most is our self-interest? Right, that we want to get ahead. Good old Adam Smith. <laughs> the Enlightenment people have a lot to answer for, in my view. Right? He wrote about enlightened self-interest as the, as the basis for classic capitalism. Well, we do have some self-interest. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not altruistic entirely. But that's not the whole story. So Lieberman writes about these, these, these various experiments that he's conducted with a, a, his wife, who is also a neuroscientist, but other, other experiments that have been conducted. And I'll get to them in a minute. So maybe some of you, as, as I did when I was going through my, my seminary training, learned about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Anybody? Right, so for those of you who haven't heard about this, it's 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 uh, he published this. Abraham Maslow published this in 1943, and and it's a it's a pyramid. It sort of like looks like the FDA food pyramid, <laughs> but it's not. It's the it's the the pyramid of of human needs, 
And at the bottom level of the pyramid, which is, of course, the, the biggest part of the pyramid, is he has our physiological needs. So that would be food, that would be water, that would be, you know, tending to physical wounds, you know, broken legs, etc. And then the next swath, which is also pretty big, but it's higher on the, uh, on the pyramid, so it's not quite so high, is safety. So shelter, uh, safety from war. This is what our polar bears were seeking in the story this morning. Safety, you know, from being eaten by polar bears if, if, they, if you should be attacked by, uh, by them. And then by now the pyramid is getting pretty narrow and the one on above that is love and belonging which makes it still pretty important according to this hierarchy, but it's, it's not as important as the other two, or not as immediately important. And then above love and, beyond, and belonging is esteem. And then at the very top, at the very tip of the, of the pyramid is self-actualization, which I think means loving the job you have, but it could be, it could be more about when we come to the point, if we're fortunate in our lives of living, recognizing that we're living what we believe our purpose, living into our purpose. Now this hierarchy of needs has been incredibly influential and incredibly, it has, it has directed much thinking. But it implies, just as the word hierarchy shows, it implies that really the thing that matters most right, is food and water, or, you know, the physiological, which, grant you, we don't survive very long without it. But this new, newer findings that I want to share with you, and maybe, maybe too, our own intuition and our own experience tells us that that may not be true. So another scientist in the 1950s named Harry Harlow designed, this was a time when attachment theory was really big, right? So the idea behind attachment theory is that infants bond to their caregiver, to their mother, because what do they get from their mother? Food, right? That if it weren't for that, that bonding wouldn't take place. So Dr. Harlow designed an experiment with rhesus monkeys, infants. And he created for this experiment two surrogates. One was a surrogate that was kind of wire mesh. Kind of looked like a monkey, but, you know, it was wires. And that surrogate provided milk. And the other surrogate also kind of looked like a monkey, and it had... Uh, you know, spongy rubber all covering it, and then over that, a, a layer of terry cloth. And that surrogate did not provide milk. And the results, when the infants were placed and uh, sort of given the opportunity to choose, the results were really dramatic. Within a very short period of time, they were all clinging to the surrogate that felt the, 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 the surrogate with the, with the terry cloth, even though that surrogate did not provide food. And they were clinging to 
this being that felt more like their mother for as much as 18 hours a day. So maybe self-interest doesn't look like we think it does, and maybe food and water aren't always the only important thing. I mean, they are important. But maybe our yearning to belong, our yearning to bond and to connect is as important, not just emotionally or spiritually or morally, but actually physiologically. So how did these scientists figure that out? They, they, they identified a portion of the brain that lights up. You know, we can do brain scans now. And the same portion of the brain that lights up when we feel physical pain lights up when we feel social pain. When nobody comes to help us and we're crying in an airport because we don't know what's going to happen or when somebody breaks up with us or doesn't pick us for their softball team. And that part of the brain has the most pleasure receptors, the most opioid receptors of any part of our brain. Makes you think about those of us who have struggled with addiction, doesn't it? when our own survival doesn't matter. This was true in my life. I just wanted that feeling of being okay, even though I wasn't. You know, our Unitarian Universalist faith, long before these studies sort of taught us that physiologically we need to connect to one another. In fact, one of uh, Dr. Lieberman's chapters is, is called Fairness Tastes Like Chocolate. <laughs> because that same brain area, when we behave in a way that is just, that same area lights up. It doesn't light up in the same way when we get a bigger house. <laughs> or more stuff. When those enlightened or not enlightened self-interest things kicks in, it lights up when we give extra money. I should have done this before the offering, shouldn't I? <laughs> Consider yourselves reminded. <laughs> but it's true. It lights up with pleasure, with actual physical pleasure. I remember being on my very first day in my chaplaincy internship at Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia, which is one of the busiest emergency rooms in, in the country, and certainly in Philadelphia. And I was, I was frightened. I may have shared this with you. I was frightened because I didn't know, I imagined that a Unitarian Universalist chaplain might be about as useful as that mesh monkey. <laughs> In the, in the experiment. 
And uh, my very first day, I, I was uh, taken into the emergency room, and there was a, 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 I think she was 14 or 15 years old, who had been in a really bad accident in school, and so she had a, a head injury. And she was in physical and emotional distress. And so I, I went to her, and I saw she was lying. She didn't want her mother to come because her mother was someone who wasn't a good person in her life. And yet, legally, we had to call her mother. And so there was this, this, this whole thing. And I, I, she was lying under the sheet. Well, she was awake. Um, and I, I, I could see where her hand was by her side. And I, I went and I put my hand over hers on top of the sheet. And she turned and looked at me. And the, the, my supervisor, who was helping me to learn, and very experienced chaplain, just quietly came up to me, and she lifted the sheet, and she put my hand into the young girl's hand. And I stood there with her, and she held my hand, and I held hers, and I don't know how long it was, but we didn't really talk. But we had that connection. And eventually her mother did come, but other, other family members and friends came. And she got the medical care that she needed, and she was okay. But I remember learning in that moment the thing that I'm hoping to share with all of you today, which was that it wasn't just her need to get good medical care. There was something else. There was something else that also was needed. And I learned that even a horrendously inexperienced and insecure <laughs> beginning Unitarian Universalist chaplain can hold someone's hand. If they let me, they don't always. And, and be of comfort. Our faith... Our faith traditions have always, back to the beginning of both the Unitarians and the Universalists, have centered helping others as part of what we do and part of what we believe. And over time, that centering became an understanding and an affirmation of the goodness, the goodness and the kindness that we possess as human beings. We said no to that theory of humanity that says we are corrupt and evil. It's not that we can't do evil. We can. And it's not that we don't do things that are wrong. But that inherent goodness, our tradition has affirmed for a long time. Our tradition has affirmed that universal love is a real thing. It's not just somewhere at the top of this pyramid. It's at the very bottom, too. Also cookies. <laughs> Dear ones, I just invite us to remember that a smile, that an affirmation, that a thank you, that an appreciation that a connection, as the poet said, this is the world we want to live in.
and it can happen anywhere, and not everything is lost. Ashe, amen, and blessed be.